weeks in a row. I appreciate those woos. They were little, they were few, but uh, you give me two times in two weeks. Uh, I'm actually flying out on Wednesday evening to the UK, so I'm going to love you on Easter from afar. Uh, thousands of Ks away, I am going to the UK to do my sister's wedding um, and see our parents. So uh, it's going to be exciting for us and crazy for my wife who gets left here with two um, kids on her own during school holidays. And all the parents understand exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so be praying for the early fa family and the household. Uh, it's going to be nuts, but the Lord is on the throne. And uh, transitioning into this final part of Our God is the series we've been in over the last uh, few weeks. Uh, this is a series where we've been looking into the Psalms and pulling out attributes of God, uh, characteristics of, of who He is, of His identity, because when that's been revealed in the Psalms that are directed to God, that are just bragging on who God is, what it does is not just give, create a, a sense of worship and praise for that God, but it helps rightly put our mind and our heart hearts. It helps align our thinking and our feeling as only God's word can. It does surgery on our hearts, surgery on our brains, aligns us with truth so that we can give worship to our great God. And so in this final part, we're going to be looking at Psalm 24. I'd encourage you, if you've missed any uh, of the parts, you can catch them up on YouTube. Uh, they, it has been an awesome series, uh, quite literally an awesome, like bringing awe again to us in our, the awesomeness of our God. Psalm 24 is, is an amazing psalm. It was written by David, authored by King David himself, uh, early on in his reign uh, as king. And a big mark of his identity and his purpose and the call and the mission that God had given him actually is to reestablish his people's worship of Yahweh. And so he even gets described in 2 Samuel uh, 23, it says this, uh, of, him, of David, who, he who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. It is so tied to the reign of David, to the mission of David called by God to lead his people to reestablish the worship of Yahweh because they had been led through the wilderness where all things had gone wrong. They had been given a king, King Saul, who started out good but had led them astray into evil things to the point where literally they had lost the Ark of the Covenant. The, the very presence of God amongst his people in the Old Testament had been lost to enemy peoples. Can I tell you, when the presence of God has left the building, has left the people, things go wrong. And a part of David's uh, call was to reestablish this worship. And actually in 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to read it a bit later, we actually find uh, the historical context for what this psalm actually would be wrapped up in. It is the reestablishment of the worship by David actually getting the Ark of the Covenant back and taking it all the way down from the valley to the west at a guy called Obed-Edom's house and making a 14K journey up the hill to Temple Mount, the highest point in Jerusalem, literally bringing the focus of Israel's worship back to the center, the presence of God, God himself in his sanctuary. It's an important moment, and this psalm is actually connected to that journey. Many scholars and, and historians believe that this psalm actually would have been sung, a hymn, a song. It would have been sung on that journey of the ark going back to Temple Mount, back into the presence of the people so that it would be the central point, the focus of their worship. Why don't you read with me, if you've got it on a device, follow along. Otherwise, you can follow on the Sky Bible. It is a beautiful psalm, a psalm of David. It says this, the earth is the Lord's 
and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. We've seen that a few times throughout the Psalms. It, it, it they actually shows up over 70 times with, uh, throughout the 150 Psalms we have. Selah is such an important word, and it's going to form a big part of what we do today. Because uh, if you've been with City for any length of time, you know we take God's word seriously. So much so that if we see it in God's word, can I tell you, we want to reflect it in what we do. It's, it's gonna shape what we believe. It's gonna shape our behavior. It's even gonna shape how we gather. And so I'm sure you've noticed we've had a bit of a different structure today. Started with two songs on the front end. We're actually gonna sing in the middle of this preach. Because Selah actually means, uh, the literal translation is to lift up and exalt. And often it gets translated as a musical instruction that actually to take a worshipful pause, to actually reflect on what has just been proclaimed and to respond in worship. And so we're gonna stop after preaching verse six and we are gonna sell it, take a moment to reflect and then we're gonna respond in worship together. The band's gonna join me. I know it's gonna feel weird. We're creatures of habit, like we're freaking out the routine. But amazingly, when we freak out the routine, this is what it does. It tells us, hey, it's not about the stuff. It's not about the order of the stuff. It's about the God we come to at worship. It puts things back in priority. It puts things back in focus. And so you're gonna get yourselves ready and you're gonna, yeah, uh, get on my back, we're going. Continues, verse seven. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory, the Lord of hosts? He is the king of glory, Selah. Guess what we're gonna do at the end? We're gonna sell her again. Why don't you pray with me, we'll dive in. Lord, so much of the Psalms is about preparing our hearts. It's about aligning our minds under the truth of who you are, creating in us and cultivating within us a heart of worship towards you a heart that is set on the things of you, not set on the things of the world. I pray right now in these moments as we get to uh, look into this psalm and, and mirror it even in how we gather and how we worship, I do pray that you would be cultivating the very ground and soil of our hearts. That Lord, where there are things that are there that are weeds that need to come out, you get them out. That where there needs to be soil that it needs to be tilled because you've got a seed to plant, that you would do that like only you can. Holy Spirit, would you be in this place? Would you be over this time? Would you prepare us? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you change us? It is all about you. Jesus, the King of glory. And everybody said, amen. Given this message, the title, the King of glory, no shock. It's the whole point of Psalm 24. Spoiler alert, Jesus is the King of glory that we read about in Psalm 24. But as we attack it, we're gonna look at it under these three big headings. Uh, I went proper preacher, three Ps, alliteration. Uh, proclamation, preparation, and procession. And each one of them actually are connected to a question that David is either posing or that he is answering. The first one, first big heading, proclamation. David asks and answers the question, who is the Lord? 
Who is the Lord that we are talking about? He kicks off the psalm by saying this, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Couple things to highlight. First thing I wanna highlight here in verse one is God made it all so he owns it all. God made it all, so he owns it all. He uses these two phrases, the earth and the world, and the distinction he makes is that the earth covers everything in creation. The land, the seas, the skies, the sun, the moon, the stars. Uh, last week when I drew on the, uh, on the flip chart, it's that box of creation that he has made. And he gets to lay claim to that as creator, having creative control and ownership over all that he has made. And then it describes the world. It actually describes the world like this in verse two. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. So he's not just the God who made it all, so therefore owns it all. He is also the foundation for life. He creates the habitable space for humanity, the pinnacle of his creation, the creation that would actually bear his image, given a special identity, given from God, purpose from God, value from God. He's the foundation for life. It says it's, he founded it upon the seas. And the picture David's taking us back to is Genesis chapter one. The creation account tells us that before there was land, before there was humanity, before there was man, woman, before there was even a habitable space for us to occupy, the whole earth was covered with the waters and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then by the word of God, he separates, he gathers the waters in one place so that land appears, habitable space for his ultimate creation, humanity, so that we could come into existence. And David wants us to know on the front end, in that space, that is our foundation. That there is no other foundation to our creation and even our existence, but God alone. That God alone is worthy of worship as we heard last week. He's worthy of worship because he was the one who by his mind, by his will, and then by his word brought us into being. We find our existence in him. We find the creation of the habitable space for us in him. It's founded upon the seas. He created the land so that you and me uh, would not drown but could walk. That's the God we are coming to. That's the proclamation of who the God of David is, the God that David is calling his people back to worship of. First, that's the first headline. Second headline is preparation. He then dives into, okay, we've proclaimed that's the God we're coming to. That's the God we will approach. But he asks this question, who shall ascend his holy hill? He does it in two parts. And I wanna take a look at what this holy hill actually is. He asks, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? What is the holy hill? Now for David, it's a, it's a one single answer, but there's a multi-dimension, multi-facets to its implication. Because this was a phrase that David used often. Actually in Psalm three, he puts it this way. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. David wants us to know that there is a place where God dwells and it's from that place that he has authority, it's from that place that he will answer, it's from that place that he will call on the worship of us, his creation. And so he asks with these two questions, uh, uh, ascend and stand. Now the holy hill he's talking about is a single answer but multidimensional in its implication. The reason for that is the answer for David is both geographic and cosmic. 
For David, it was a geographical place in that the holy hill of Israel was quite literally Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It was physically the highest point in all the area around. If you were standing on Temple Mount, you can do it right now, and you walk in any direction, you will walk downhill. To the north, to the east, to the south, to the west, it is the highest point. That's the holy hill geographically that David was talking about, quite literally on his journey of bringing the ark back to that place. But cosmically, he's also speaking about the cosmic place of God's presence. Because as we've seen throughout this whole year, God has a sanctuary, a dwelling place, and the desire of our God, as he's revealed in his word, is that we would dwell with him there. That he is the God who is in the holy hill, sits at the top of the holy hill because he is holy and infinite. God creator, the foundation of the creation is found in him. But he doesn't sit there alone. He actually calls humanity, his creation, up into that space. He calls us to dwell with him in his sanctuary. And David asked the question, who can ascend and who can stand? For a moment, can I just take a a little detour here? Do we understand how scandalous it is that David could even ask that question? That the holy hill we're talking about, the holy one of Israel, God that was just proclaimed at the start in the first two verses, that God is the God that we could even entertain the idea of approaching. When we know he is so holy that nothing can compare. When he is so big that nothing can stand against him. That he is so infinite that time, space, matter are all outside of his existence. He is above it all. And yet that's the God that still desires that we would enter into his presence. And yet we know ourselves that we are so imperfect, that we are so broken, that we are so in the dark compared to his light, that we are such an unholy people that we don't even choose God if we're left to our own devices. And yet David can ask, who shall ascend his hill? Who could stand in his presence? Sometimes we get a bit too casual in realizing that we can actually stand before a holy God. And yet that's the God that wants us standing there, (laughs) that has made the means for us to be cleaned and made pure so that we can stand there. Because he gives the answer as to the one. He asks the question, who can stand, who can can ascend, who can stand? Basically, David, David is asking who can enter the presence and most importantly, who can stay in his presence? If he's a holy God, let me tell you, he, can't, he will reject all unholiness. He can't stay in his presence. And yet there are those who are called to ascend and those who are called to stand. And those who ascend actually are gonna direct their worshipful heart towards God. But to stay, it means that they are gonna have to line up in their hearts and hands. And that's the answer it actually given to the question. In the very next verse, David declares that the one who can ascend the hill, the one who can stand in the presence of God is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now for them on their journey, bringing the ark to the top of the mountain, to the mountain of God, to Temple Mount itself, it meant there had to be a people that were prepared, that there were people uh, in both their heart and their actions, they were aligned so that they could ascend his holy hill. But the picture of the Bible is that always the physical will speak to the spiritual. And so it might have been walking up to Table Mount for David, but can I tell you, for you and me this morning, it is us ascending his holy hill in the spiritual. It is us again entering into his presence. And David makes it very clear, we enter his presence when we have clean hands and a pure heart. 
Now the opposite and the contrast of clean hands and pure heart is stained and false. And it's important that we understand this because we know that the problem of humanity is a heart problem because we are impure. And there's different combinations to the stained and the impure, to the false actions and the false motives. One combination is actually when what is inside doesn't, is in contradiction to what is outside. What is outside is the actions, the things we see, the behavior on the outside. But we know that there are people, and Jesus experienced this even in his time here on earth, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day, he saw it strong. They had actions on the outside that looked good. They had clean hands by the level of the law. 613 laws in the Old Testament, they kept every single one. But behind the scenes, on the inside, their motives were impure. And Jesus sees into their heart, sees the impurity, sees the contradiction and says, you're doing it for your glory, not his glory. You're doing it for the glory of yourselves amongst men instead of being, bringing glory to God through what you're doing. It's why he, his insult, his, and it is an insult, it's an indictment of the religious leaders of the day. He actually calls them whitewashed walls. And it's a reference to ancient tombs of the day, ancient graves of the day, because you would have graves that would be adorned and, and decorated with white paint so that they had this kind of marble uh, kind of a look. And he says, you are whitewashed walls, because he says, on the outside you are pretty, but on the inside you are dead. What is inside is not aligning with what is outside. If we have clean hands and a pure heart, it means the outside and the inside are both working in tandem together towards the directed worship of God. The other combination also exists, where on the outside there is so much brokenness that is not difficult to see. It's the picture of the lost sinner that might even have like good intentions on the inside, but somehow the brokenness that is there is complete and comprehensive, that it comes out in behavior and it's broken, very obvious. The bad news to David's question is that when we have those combinations at play, we cannot enter the presence of a holy God. That's the bad news. But the good news is coming. But the application, just for a moment, because I don't want to rush over it, is that Jesus is the only one who can discern the human heart. He sees right to the core of the problem. Because the problem actually is an impure heart. We are rotten to the core. That's the bad news. But the good news is this, that the blessing is hidden in the curse. Verse five says this, that those who have clean hands and a pure heart, this is what happens to them. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness. That's super important. So he who has clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing. That makes sense to me. If we are clean hands, pure heart, the blessing of God will be upon us. That makes sense. But do you notice the little bit of contradiction here? Because it doesn't just say you just receive blessing. It actually says you, when we have clean hands and pure heart, we receive blessing and righteousness. The contradiction at face value looks like, but I received the righteousness that I need in the first place to get the righteousness. Does that not make sense? At face value, it seems very contradictory because how could I have clean hands and a pure heart, righteousness, to then receive righteousness? But the key is at the end of the verse. We receive righteousness from the God of our salvation. Salvation is the key. 
Because salvation is not what comes from you and me, from our action. It comes as a gift from God. It doesn't get achieved by our action or anything we do. It gets given as a gift freely from God himself. And so we can be ones who have a clean heart and pure, a pure heart and clean hands because that is the gift God will give us in, our, in, in ourselves so that our impure can be made pure, so that what is unclean can be cleansed. And in that, we get blessing. In that, we receive from him. We know that the saving grace of God is necessitated by this heart problem. Grace is not from you or me, it's from God alone. The heart problem is that we have impure hearts. Jesus actually in Mark chapter seven um, described it like this. He said, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts. And then it lists a long list of sins, sexual immorality, covetedness, wickedness, deceit, so a whole thing, verse 23. All these things come from within and they defile a person. When we're broken on the inside, when we're impure on the inside, what is inside eventually will come out because God can discern the heart of man. And it is that sin, that imperfection, that brokenness that then will defile us, make us unholy, impure, and unable to ascend the holy hill of God. But the good news, the beautiful picture is that God declares alone, he can give us a new heart. Ezekiel eleven nineteen says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. The heart of stone that is directed away from God, the heart of stone that walks the road of evil and self-worship and not the worship of God gets replaced with a heart of flesh, goes from a heart that was dead and becomes a heart that is alive. We get the new heart. The question is, well, how do you receive that new heart? How do you receive that righteousness from God? How do you receive that salvation from Jesus, the King of glory? The answer is also in Psalm 24, because it speaks of the person who has clean hands, the person who has the pure heart that we so seek. And it describes him like this, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. It's a phrase that gets uh, rendered a couple of times in the Old Testament. It gets in Proverbs and Hosea and Deuteronomy. But another way that it can be rendered or translated is not just to lift your soul up to what is false, but to set your heart on. And so the person who has a pure heart will not lift their soul up to what is false, but the person who uh, has a pure heart also won't lift, set their heart upon what is false. They will set their heart upon what is true. They will not set their heart upon the bad, the dark, the evil of our world. They set their heart upon the truth, the beauty, the splendor of God himself, of the gift of salvation in Jesus alone. The band's gonna join me on stage. We're gonna get our hearts ready because the seller is coming. And the seller is a moment where worshipfully we get to take a pause and reflect where we actually get to ask the question and do a bit of a heart check moment and ask, where is my heart right now? What is the state of my heart? Where have I set my heart? Have I set my heart on false things, on the falsity of this world, on things that will disappoint, on things that will break me down, on things that have broken my heart, on things that are impure, not on the things that are holy and good that are in God. Have I set my things, uh, my focus, my heart on the things of the valley of the shadow of death and not on the holy hill of God? For a moment, 
we get to lift our eyes again. We get to set our heart on what is beautiful, on what is holy, on God himself. We get to set our heart into the hands of Jesus. And so I want you to know, if your heart is feeling weary and tired and broken, if your heart has been suffering under the impurity of this human flesh that always fails us, that never satisfies, God is calling you right now to place your heart in Him, to set your heart in His hands because He is the one that can restore. He is the one that can make new. He is the one that can bring out of something dead, new life. Out of a spirit that is dead and away from God, he can bring a new spirit that is directed to God. Stand with me. We're gonna take a few moments and it's gonna be a few moments. The band's just gonna play behind, it'll be silent. And it's a moment where you get to reflect and actually ask those questions of your own heart. Where's, what's the state of my heart? What have I set my heart on right now? And after those few moments, we're then gonna get ourselves ready because we have a God that has given us hope. The bad news is our heart is broken, our hands are unclean. But the good news is that there is hope in Jesus. And we get to sing about that living hope. We get to turn our eyes again to the King of glory and declare it is you. Praise belongs to you. Worth belongs to you. You are the only God worthy of our worship. Take a few moments, check your heart, and then we will sing. Lord, as we seek to mirror what we see in this psalm, we take a, a, a worshipful pause, a worshipful moment to reflect on the truth of who you are, of what you proclaimed, of the preparation you do in our very own hearts to ascend your holy hill, to bring you worship. Lord, would you cultivate in us a new heart, a new spirit? Would you sink your word deep, your truth deep, the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God is available to us so that we can walk into your courts and we get to do it with praise and thanksgiving. And after a moment of Selah, we choose to respond in worship. We choose to sing about the truth that we have just heard. Because Lord, you are the only one worthy of our song. You are the only one worthy of our adoration, of our attention, of our worship. So we choose to lift up our hearts, to set them on you, to set them on the things of God, knowing that you do not fail, that you are faithful, that you are our good God, that you are worthy of all adoration, all praise, all honor. Lord, we lift up our hands. We lift up our heads. We lift up our eyes and our hearts. We give worship to you. Church, let's sing. Let's sing about that living hope. Let's sing about the hope that we have in Jesus.
Jesus, we lift you up. You are worthy of our praise, worthy of all honor. You are our living hope. Just for a moment, I want to pray. James, it came to me and we think we're feeling something in the room. Maybe that the Spirit is doing, just wanting to pause for a moment. Selah on. Maybe you know that living hope and it's beautiful that your heart gets to sing of that living hope. But there is someone you know, there's people you know, people you're close to, who you know that's not their story. And they're on your heart right now and it breaks your heart that they can't sing the same. And for a moment, maybe we just need to actually sing over them. Maybe we just need to lift them up in prayer for a moment. That actually, God, you've got their number. That God, you see their heart, that their heart is in your crosshairs. And Lord, when we as a people pray for those who are far from you, for those who have not had a heart that has been turned to you, Lord, it is like a missile going straight for their heart. Nothing can stop it, no defense, no circumstance, no darkness. No, nothing can oppose your love, your mercy, your grace, your gospel, your good news, your son taking a hold of them. And so if that's, a, if that's you, if there's someone right now in your life, I, I, I'd want you just to, to think of them right now, to speak their name. And Lord, we lift up these people, we lift up these names, these hearts to you, knowing that, Lord, you have their number, that you're, we pray that they would enter your crosshairs, that your, your spirit would go after them, that through us they would know that they have a living hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, so that hearts could be turned back to you, so that there is now no obstacle in the way, that they have been made pure, made clean, able to ascend the holy hill of God, enter into his sanctuary, do it with praise and thanksgiving because there is hope in Jesus and there's hope for all. There is no one who is too far gone. There is no one who you do not see. There is no one that you cannot grab a hold of. We lift them up. We stand as a proxy saying, Lord, would you grab a hold of hearts as only you can? Salvation is the key. Would you save and would you save to the uttermost? We lift them up. But most of all, we lift up your name. We lift up the living hope of Jesus, the King of glory, the one we sing to, the one we sing about. Would we direct our hearts again to you? Would you do work in us? And everybody said, amen. Why don't you take your seats? Let's keep it going. Selah. And then David will jump into verse seven. And it is this chorus song, this hymn of the third heading, this hymn of procession. And the question being asked is, gets echoed so many times throughout verses seven to 10, these last few verses of the psalm. Who is this king of glory? Who are we talking about? Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. I think you've got that. But in this idea of this procession that David was leading, down from the valley all the way up to the holy hill of God in Jerusalem. I wanna give us a picture because it's so important that in the reestablishment of uh, Israel's worship that we don't miss that we're called to go the same way. That actually that procession of the king of glory re-entering into his sanctuary among his people, dwelling with them there, is actually God's heart for you and me right now. 
And we get to join in with that procession because it's a royal procession. He's the king of glory and he's entering into again his kingdom. And these words will ring out. Verse seven kicks off, it says, lift up your heads, O gates. Quite literally speaking to the gates of Jerusalem. So that as the ark would enter, that picture of the presence of God, the picture actually of Jesus in the Old Testament, our provision from God, the presence of God, God with us, Emmanuel, that that would be the king of glory that gets welcomed in to the sanctuary of God. Lift up, O ancient doors. We get to be ones who lift up in the same way. Now, when you talk about Temple Mount in Jerusalem, I mentioned to you it's the highest point. If you go in any direction, you head downhill. I wanna put this elevation map up just so you can see what kind of the landscape looks like. From any direction, you will ascend to get to that point. And at this time for David in 2 Samuel chapter six, on that mount, on that point, actually the temple hadn't even been constructed yet. On that point at that time was still the tent tabernacle that had followed Israel around as they were in their wanderings in the desert. And now it stood there empty without the ark. They had quite literally lost the presence of God and now were reestablishing it back in its rightful place, in the central part, in the central focus of the people. And many believe that this, especially verses seven to 10, would have been what was sung as the ark entered into Jerusalem and ascended that holy hill. I wanna take you to uh, this passage in 2 Samuel 6. Because it's important that we note the elements that are included in David's helping of his people to reestablish worship. Because it's going to speak to us. It starts in verse 12. It says, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom. It's to the west of Jerusalem. You have Jericho down to the east. The house of Obed-Edom is down to the west. And it says, to the city of David with rejoicing. Uh, I'll I'll put up this other picture. This is actually the city of David uh, underneath Temple Mount. And that road is the road that the ark would have traveled up to get to its place, to get to its point at the top of the hill. That whole bottom section is known as the city of David. It's actually the old town of Jerusalem. You can walk that same road today. The same road that the ark would travel on, the same road that as we see David would dance behind That's the road it still exists today. And then it continues and it says, and when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. I told you from the house of uh, Obed-Edom all the way to Temple Mount is 14 kilometers. If you wanna reestablish the worship of your people, you need to reestablish sacrifice and surrender. And so for 14 Ks, every six steps, an oxen would be, sacrificed and the symbol was that when we worship and we are sacrificial and surrender everything to God what we are saying is there is nothing more valuable than you and that actually we are called to be a prepared people a people who are pure in heart clean in our hands and so sacrifice is necessary for our cleansing so that our hearts are prepared to enter into your holy place and so David every six steps would sacrifice for his people for 14 kilometers up a mountain. It continues. And David danced before the Lord. Can I tell you, when there's sacrificial worship, when worship's directed to God, there's always joy attached. Ultimate joy. Joy that the world just can't understand. He would dance with all his might. And this is important. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
Now, the ephod was actually a priestly uh, outfit. And so da uh, David, even as king, will wear now the ephod. And so he's not just reestablishing the priesthood, because priests actually would represent people to God. Prophets represent God to people. Priests are responsible for rep representing people to God. It's why they're involved in the sacrifices, because there's a cleansing that needs to happen. And so when someone has to stand as a proxy, just as we did now. Someone has to stand representing someone else to a holy God so that they can be cleansed and made holy to walk into his presence. So he's not just reestablishing the priesthood, but I really do believe he was given the nation of Israel, that, the people he was called to lead, he was giving them a very important picture saying our focus is gonna be the worship of God and God alone. And so in this moment, I want you to know I'm taking my crown off and I'm putting on a different outfit because we only have one king and it is God alone. We're entering his house, his palace, his sanctuary, and I take the form of a servant. He may have placed a crown on my head to lead you. That is purely for human function. Can I tell you, the picture is he is God. He is king. He is the one that we come for. And so he wears the linen ephod to show his people, hey, I am nothing. He is everything. It's the picture of David. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark with shouting and the sound of the horn. I hope you're starting to see this idea of this royal procession. It's almost this royal entry of the king of glory, that picture of Jesus in the ark of the covenant, the presence of God in the Old Testament amongst his people, re-entering the city of Jerusalem and entering as a procession would of a, a king where there's great shouting and noise and horns because there's a declaration of the name and the authority and the power of the one entering. And the command to the gates is, would you lift up? Would you open up? Would you let the king of glory in? And would you open up, O oh, doors, the doors of the tabernacle? You've sat empty for too long. Open up so that the king of glory might come in. The beautiful picture of Jesus as the king of glory in the picture of the ark is that as the gates would open and as the doors would open, behind them, the doors would be left open. They were never closed behind the ark. Even David would follow behind the ark when he was dancing because he also wanted us to know that the king of glory enters first. The one who can ascend the hill is Jesus first. Because he can ascend the hill, it means we can. And he's the one who turns back and invites us in, who desires to see us in his sanctuary, dwelling with him as our God. It's all about the power of ascent. It's the picture of Jesus, the King of glory. And you get to these verses in verses eight and 10, and it begins to ask the question, and it echoes it, who is this King of glory? Gives us an answer. Who is this King of glory? Gives us an answer. The King of glory is the Lord, strong and mighty, and mighty in battle. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. Another name for Jesus, he is the King of glory. It wouldn't be long after David's writing of Psalm 24 that he would get the Davidic promise of the Messiah, that the Messiah, the savior of not just the Jewish nation, but all of humanity would come through his kingly line. And when he wrote these things of the king of glory, I wonder if he understood the depth of what he was writing. I wonder if he understood who he was writing about. Because what we also know is that he actually wrote Psalm 24 in a collection of three Psalms together. And in your Bibles, you'll find them in Psalm 24, Psalm 23, and Psalm 22. 
And when you look at it through this lens of a picture of Jesus, the King of glory, the one who is to come, can I tell you, it changes the way you read these Psalms. Because the picture in Psalm 22 of Jesus, the Messiah, is the afflicted one. Psalm 22 kicks off with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Matthew 27, Jesus hanging on the cross, bleeding broken. He cries out in Aramaic for all to hear. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He actually quotes the words of David in this psalm. And for a moment, we get to see the affliction of Jesus, but his great faith. Because as he was broken, beaten, forsaken, as he's taken to the edge of physical and spiritual turmoil, even in the midst of the affliction, there is a hint of hope. There is a picture of what was to come, deliverance. Because in, in Psalm 22, in the 24th verse, it says this about God. For he, that's God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, his son. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The picture of the afflicted one in Psalm 22 wants us to know that pain and affliction is not the end of the story. It's temporary. It was temporary for Jesus. He would be forsaken for a moment so that the sin of the world could be placed on him and the debt there could be paid on our behalf. But God the Father says it is for a moment. It is temporary. If that is true of Jesus in his pain and affliction, can I tell you it is true of us in our pain and affliction. Pain and affliction is not the end of your story. Pain and affliction doesn't have to be the end of my story because we get to walk the way of Jesus. We get to set our hearts in Jesus' hand and he has a different story. Fast forward, Psalm 24, what we've been looking at today. Jesus is the picture of the glorified one. The one who is ruling and railing, the king of glory who has strength and might. His victory is sure. Triumph is sure. It's guaranteed. He's won it. The war has been won. The father's raised him up. He has the name that is above every other name. So that at no other name but the name of Jesus will every tongue confess, will every knee bow and declare that he is Lord, the Lord of hosts. He's the glorified one. And so victory and glory for Jesus is the end of the story. That's guaranteed. Can I tell you if pain and affliction was the beginning and not the end, and that's true for us, I hope you hear it. I hope it brings hope to your heart that we have an eternal hope that victory and triumph is guaranteed in Jesus and Jesus alone for us. The same that is true of Jesus can be true of us as we are hidden in him as we have given our hearts over to him, as he has been made Lord over us, so that we get to share in his victory, in his triumph, in his glory. He's the afflicted one in 22. He's the glorified one in 24. And in the middle, you have Psalm 23. Can I tell you, when you look at it through this lens, Psalm 23, the most famous psalm in all of the world, takes a very different look. Because the picture of Jesus in Psalm 23 is the bridge between affliction and triumph. And the bridge is one who is satisfied. The lamb that was slain finds satisfaction looking to the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is satisfaction. 
and it doesn't discredit the pain and affliction. It actually says the pain and affliction is real, but we get to walk it out very differently because the pain and affliction in 22 changes to trust and contentment in 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He leads me, he guides me, he restores me. The good shepherd is good. He has mercy for me. He has provision for me. He sets a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Psalm 23 is the middle between affliction and triumph. Can I tell you, our human life right now in the hands of Jesus gets lived out in the middle. And if we get stuck in pain and affliction, can I tell you there's more. There is something better even in the now. Because what is guaranteed is glory and triumph in the, in the future. That's eternal, that's guaranteed, it's in Jesus. But even in the now as we walk, we get to walk as satisfied ones, not unsatisfied ones. We get to walk not as the afflicted, but as ones that are following on and following after our shepherd, who leads, who protects, who guides, who restores, who provides for us. We serve a God who knows our pain and affliction because he walked through it. He lived and died through it. He's the one who won victory for us in eternity. And so when he says, I have got you, when he says, I can lead you through still waters and I can lead you to good green pastures, it's because he knows he can. And maybe your heart right now is sitting in the place of affliction and pain. I want you to know God's got a word for you. And that word is good news because he says, you get to walk this thing out differently. When it's put in my hands, when it's following me as your shepherd, Dan's gonna start playing and we're gonna stand because we're gonna prepare ourselves again for another seller moment. A moment where we get to put all focus on Jesus, the King of glory. The only one who is worthy of our worship. The only one who is worthy to ascend the holy hill. The only one who is worthy to stand in the holy presence of God because he was pure and clean, beginning, middle, and end. He's the one who could pay for our sins on our behalf, pay the debt. Can I tell you, he is the one that is worthy to ascend, to enter first into the holy presence of God. But the reason we can ascend too is because he descended into death and hell for us. When he was on the cross, where he would be beaten and broken and marred beyond human likeness, Scripture says that he descended into Sheol, the place of the dead. And from there, he would steal the keys of life back. And then he will ascend to his holy hill so that now on that holy hill, in that place, in his sanctuary, lies life. Life for you and me. Life eternal. So that the heart of stone, the impure heart, the unclean actions that we have, now can be changed by him in a moment changed in an instant and then he calls us even in an empowered journey a procession a royal procession to again ascend his holy hill to enter into his holy presence as ones who are prepared ones who have hearts who are directed to him ones who have hands that have been cleansed by his blood so that we look more and more like him so that we're more and more in the presence of God so that more and more we can be his presence even in the world so that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, we fear no evil.
because he is with us. We're going to sing. And we're going to sing a song called Worthy. Because when it comes to Jesus, there is no one more worthy of our worship. And so before we even get into a moment of ministry or a moment where I want to pray with people, I want to again turn our attention back to Jesus. I want us to sing about that glorious name, that name that is worthy of all praise. And I'd encourage you, just as the, as the gates of Jerusalem and the doors of the tabernacle were commanded and, and exhorted to open and to lift up, would we lift up our eyes? Would we lift up our hearts? Would we lift up our hands? Would we sing of his praise? Because he is worthy of it. Let's sing together.
as your glory fills this place you alone deserve our praise you're the name above all names be exalted now in the heavens as your glory fills this place you alone deserve our praise you're the name above all names be exalted Jesus, that's who you are. The name above all names. 
the glorified one, the king of glory, the one who is worthy to ascend the hill, the one who is worthy to stand, the holy presence of God. We give all honor to you. We give glory to you. It is all about you, Jesus. You in the, being the glorified one in 24 ensures for us that we have an eternal hope that there's victory and there's triumph in you in eternity. That you are the God who wipes away every tear. You're the God who fixes every wrong. You're the God who answers for everything that goes wrong on this side of eternity so that we can be restored, renewed, made new. And we get to worship our God in eternity. For a moment, I wanna pray for a group of people that maybe are feeling the struggle of life right now, the struggle of circumstance. That when we read Psalm 22 and Jesus' words of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They are words that you could say right now because that's how you feel. Forsaken by God. Because there is so much pain and affliction and it might be in any number of areas. For a moment, I wanna pray for anyone in that space because the good news of Jesus is that that's not the end of the story. That pain and and affliction don't have to be the story over us that Jesus gets the final word, that he was the lamb that was slain and that he is our good shepherd who can renew and restore, who can put back together what was broken, what was damaged, what was hurt by someone else's action or inaction, by the darkness and the chaos of our world. We have an enemy that can attack. We have an enemy that can break down. We have an enemy that can divide. But the one lie he has that he always uses is that we are alone in our pain and affliction. Can I tell you, Jesus sees you in your pain and affliction. He was the one who lived in it, died through it. He knows what it means to walk that road. And the biggest lie of the enemy is that in that space, you're alone. He wants you to know you're not. He wants you to know that he is with you. That he is the good shepherd who has come to find his lost sheep. The one who leads, the one who protects. He's a good shepherd. If you feel like that's actually you, with every eye closed just for a moment, if you feel like God has maybe forsaken you, the pain and affliction of your circumstance right now is so vast, so crazy, so big, that you just need prayer, that you just need people to get around you, put a hand on your shoulder, God knows the details. He knows the ins and outs. But for a moment, can we approach God? Can we give our prayer to Him because He is a good God who hears us? He is a good God who meets us in our pain and affliction so that in Him we can have satisfaction, so that in Him we can have unending strength, so that in Him we can have unquenchable joy. If that applies to you, won't you just raise your hand so I I could pray with you right now? If you see someone around you with their hand raised, would you mind just getting a hand on their shoulder? I don't want anyone to be in this place uh, without a hand on their shoulder. Because again, you're not alone. God's put people around you. God himself is wrapping his arms around you today. Jesus, we pray for every life that's represented.
every hand that is raised, every heart that is here, every heart that is sitting in a place where it's weary and tired and broken, where it has been mashed beyond repair, where there is nothing in the world that could satisfy, where there's nothing in the world that could restore. I pray for situations right now where it looks like there is no way out, there is no way back. But we know that in our pain and affliction, when it comes to you, no one is too far gone. And so Lord, we pray over every pain and affliction. We pray that you would bring your restorating, restoration power, that your resurrecting life would be there, that where there have been hearts that have been made weary and tired, that you will be the God who gives your strength who gives the blessing of your strength, your unquenchable joy, because the joy of the Lord is our strength. Would we take joy again in you as our creator? Would we know that we are never ones who, for, who are forsaken? There was one who was forsaken, it was for a moment, and it was so that we would not be forsaken for eternity. Jesus has got you. Jesus is holding you. Would you place your broken heart would you pray, place the darkness of your circumstance, would you give it over to him? Would you place it in his hands? Because he is good and faithful and he can bring it back. He can restore, he can renew. We have an eternal hope that all gets made new, all gets fixed, all gets righted in eternity. But can I tell you, God wants to meet you in your affliction now. Jesus, you're so good. We put our faith, our trust, our hope in you and you alone, in nothing else. Everything else will leave us unsatisfied, but you, Lord, will help us walk this road satisfied in the power of Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're gonna sing one last time. And this is a song that I can tell you we're gonna raise the roof with. Because the gift that we get through the Psalms is that we get war cries of praise and thanksgiving and worship. And so we have a God who calls us into his sanctuary, who calls us up into his holy hill, and we get to walk in being a people of praise. And so we get to declare that even though the battle has, is raging right now, just like the gates and the doors, we get to lift our heads. We get to lift our hands. We get to lift our hearts because he is worthy of it. And so we choose to give praise to him. So we're gonna get loud. We're gonna get rowdy. Band's gonna help us do that. But we've got a good God who's worthy of our praise. Let's lift our war cry to him. Let's do it.